0: Hi, I'm Zakir Elias, and this is Representation Matters, a conversation around equality, diversity and inclusion in the workplace podcast series by The Equal Group, bringing you stories, insights and learnings around optimising equality, diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Welcome to today's episode of Representation Matters, where I'm joined by Susie Levy, founder and managing director of The Red Play. Susie is a great EDI advocate and has decades of experience in helping leaders and leadership teams make complex changes in the way equality, diversity and inclusion is embedded in their organisations. Susie has also recently written a book about inclusion called Mind the Inclusion Gap, with a view of getting self-proclaimed nice people to be more active in EDI. I had the opportunity to catch up with Susie to discuss more about her thoughts and experiences of working in the EDI space. Let's take a listen to the conversation, which began with me asking, who is Susie Levy? Thanks very much. So who
1: am I? Uh, Well, um, I'm a passionate uh, person of change. I started my career in the late 90s, which gives you a little bit of of a view from my age. But uh, I currently work with clients, helping them with some of their most complicated human challenges. So um, I live and work in southwest London, and almost all of my work is helping create a better working environment and better world
0: for everyone in it. Great introduction Susie and it's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast today. Um, You know I remember the first time where we spoke which was probably around a week ago now you mentioned that you were late to the diversity game and I think that's a really great place to to start our conversation as it allows you to share with listeners more about your experiences. So what's your journey been like and how has diversity and inclusion become a career for you?
1: Well um, when I started my career in the late 90s I I remember being invited into a room based on being a woman, so it was a women's networking event, and I found the entire process so off-putting, I didn't come back to diversity until um, around 2010, and the reason being was the, the, the woman, who was very well-meaning, was on stage talking to all of the women in the room about all the challenges we would have, babies and nannies, and managing our career, and at the time, I was 21 years old. I didn't have a boyfriend. I wasn't sure if I wanted children. And quite frankly, I was struggling with work-life balance, with the, um, the huge pressure of having a, a, a very complicated job for a young person, um, traveling all over the U.S. at the time, working for clients as a management consultant. And I also happened to Oh, about 100,000 in student loans. So I was eating ramen at 10 for a dollar packets, trying to save up everything I could every month to get those student loans off my back. And this particular woman, I can remember it very, very clearly, was wearing a cashmere beige coat. And it, I just remember thinking, we might both have breasts, but there's very little between the two of us that is similar And in that moment, I sort of closed the door on diversity, thinking it's not for me, it's not relevant. I've got so many other things that I need to be focused on right now. And I, as I said, I didn't come back for almost a decade and a half because I found it slightly off-putting and very irrelevant for the moment I was in my career.
0: Thank you for sharing that, Susie. And I think, you know, most students can relate to a bit of your story there. And so, you know, after that period of time in your life, you know, that decade, what event or what turning point was it that then led you to you know pursue a career um, in diversity and inclusion? Great question. So it wasn't
1: actually me being more purposeful. Uh, when I moved to the UK, I worked for the same consulting firm. They were a big global um, uh, international consulting firm and, I saw a lot of bullying and harassment that I hadn't seen in the Seattle office of the same organization, and so I started getting involved in the people agenda, um, just on the human decency side of things. You know how we should treat people and and be honest about when tensions arise, how not to create an environment um, that really was degrading, and and there were moments of that. So I started the bullying, and on the back of that, I ended up being asked by one of the senior partners to lead all things people on the side of my desk, including the diversity agenda. And I'll be honest, when he asked me, so his name was Frank, he asked me to own it. I, I can remember thinking, oh, do I have to? <laughs> I really didn't want to. Like, yeah, I, um, because again, I still thought it's not for me. It's not relevant. But I'm really glad he did for a number of reasons. Uh, obviously, it changed my career. Or I wouldn't be here today. But It was the data that really drew me in. So as a woman and as a white woman, I hadn't really noticed the challenges that other people were facing. I was in my own little bubble, focused on the things that mattered to me, but I had not lifted my head up and started looking around to say, is equality happening in this place? I could see there was a bit of a challenge between men and women. But I didn't necessarily feel like it applied to me. And I think some of that was being American, working abroad. So I, I believe, and the more I speak to people, when you're an expat, you're afforded, especially a female expat, you're afforded slightly different social norms. So I could be more aggressive. I could, I could step into a place that a British woman wasn't necessarily afforded. And it did not harm my career. In fact, it helped my career. And my American social norms, if you will, uh, catapulted me through very fast progression. So I kind of was as a woman going, what's all this fuss about, right? Until someone handed me the data. And when when you look at diversity data, the problems have become very clear, right? You you begin to realize just how white or just how disproportionate your organization can be when
0: it's all sat in front of you, because numbers don't lie. That's such an interesting point that you made about being American and the impact that's kind of had on, you know, you working in the UK um, and just being able to perhaps get away with doing certain things in the workplace that perhaps, you know, a British woman wouldn't be able to do. Um, And, you know, you definitely hit the nail on the head there when you said that data does reveal or, you know, it certainly does and it does not lie. And I think that's something that's really important to us, you know, at the Equal Group. You know, we truly do believe that, you know, one of the first steps to really embracing equality, diversity and inclusion is, you know, gathering that solid data so you can see, you know, where there are, you know, areas of improvement or, you know, where you are doing well as an organisation. Um, so, yeah, that was definitely, I definitely agree with you there. And I also want to add that I think your story is a great example of, you know, it's never too late to get into the diversity game I think that once people get past the kind of mindset that it doesn't affect them and realize that, you know, everybody does have a role to play in diversity and inclusion. And that is possible for anyone. um, That's, you know, that's the key step into helping translate intention into into action. So, um, you know, a very important point that you made there. Um, And now I do want to bring up something that you mentioned during our last meeting, and it really stuck with me. And that was that inclusion isn't always about being nice. Um, And it got me thinking that if someone heard that without any context, you know, they may take it the wrong way or they just may not understand. So um, I was wondering, Susie, if you could perhaps explain what inclusion means to you um, and then elaborate on what you meant when you said inclusion isn't always about being nice. I'd be happy to do that. Um, So probably starting
1: a bit with my own journey, I did used to think inclusion and nice were the same thing. And I had relied on my, uh, you know, nice person instincts my whole career. And in particular, working at a a consulting firm, I think this is really important because I was staffing a lot of teams. And in that sort of world, you, you, you meet a new team every few months, and you have to gel, you know, be in front of the client, and then you're in another new team. and When I took over inclusion and diversity that my first major lesson happened and it was a um a multi-day leadership training for our lesbian gay bisexual transgender colleagues and there were 15 individuals in the room and I was the executive sponsor and I wasn't that keen on the training if I'm honest I felt it wasn't needed why can't we just do leadership training and and then have different diverse groups in the room but Regardless, my LGBT colleagues convinced me to pay for support and sponsor. And as I was in the room, I had this major, major epiphany. I realized that coming out when you're LGBT isn't the day you told your parents. It isn't the day you decided to be open about who you love. It's every moment in the future. Because we live in a world that assumes that you're heterosexual. And so LGBT individuals and my colleagues were having to make conscious choices about safety, about okayness, about how welcoming either their colleagues or their clients would be, and then choosing to be themselves. And so this moment where I realized that out wasn't history, out was in the future, I also had the personal uh, revelation that I had never purposely supported anyone in coming out. I'd never laid the groundwork. I'd never used terms like partner or inclusive language. I had just assumed that by being a nice leader, a nice line manager, it was enough. And so that was the first sort of crack in my awareness for, and, and the realization that nice and in- inclusive weren't the same thing because that meant over the 50-some teams I'd staffed, I'd never made it simple, okay, really clear, and taken steps towards inclusivity of lgbt individuals when they joined my team Now that doesn't mean i was a bad person but i had not done purposeful action and so in my mind you asked me the question what is inclusion i think inclusion is a verb it's a doing thing you have to have understanding to know what to do in order to be inclusive and niceness while it's a really good thing to rely upon sometimes sends you in the wrong direction of the action you might need to take in order to be inclusive of a certain
0: group. That's a brilliant explanation, Susie, and I really like the way you phrased it of inclusion being a purposeful action. Um, you know, I've done many different podcasts and I've asked this question to various people, but and this is the first time that I've heard inclusion being described as a verb, um, you know, as an action, a doing word. So, you know, thank you for sharing that uh, for with the listeners. Um, and so, you know, based on your experiences then of working in the DNI space, you know, why do you think companies want to start implementing this change? Do you think there is a genuine desire to, you know, do better, or do you think a lot of it has to do with wanting to have a better CSR, you know, corporate responsibility, essentially, you know, having appearance of being committed to diversity? but this just being a very temporary reaction to social movements that we saw, you know, all over the world, such as Black Lives Matter. So I'm interested to know, Susie, what do you think it is that's you know, driving these companies to, to want to have change? Well, I think the intention
1: or the reason um, for doing diversity or creating a culture of inclusion really varies, right? So I have met companies who are definitely skimming the surface, wanting to appear, um. I'm pleased to say that none of those are my clients, (laughs) but we usually decide to depart ways very quickly. But mostly I meet really good human beings who want to get it right, but don't quite know how. Or organizations who started early on their diversity agenda and got it wrong, right? I mean, we're making this up as we go. Let's be honest. Figuring this out is something that we are all doing together, which means it's It's a space where we can often take one step forward, two steps back, not two steps forward, one one step back. Because when we get something wrong, we often create a sense of tissue rejection from the organization. So I meet a lot of organizations who definitely want to do this, and I meet a lot of leaders who want to do this, but they're incredibly time poor, incredibly time poor, and they want it to happen quickly. And I think we have to remember that we're undoing hundreds of years of social history if we take um, the race agenda and black lives matter movement a very white power architected society is something we've been living in in europe anyway for quite some time right and we are undoing social norms of what beauty is social norms of what hair should look like social norms of what language and body language and even the way we speak are littered in whiteness, right? It doesn't matter which country we're talking about and we will have our own nuance to that in Germany or the Netherlands or France or um, in Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales or England, but they are still dominant white societies and figuring out how to create a space for that inclusion, I think is really important. Um, In the wake of Black Lives Matter and actually George Floyd's murder, I think it's important to recognize that most diversity agendas were not embracing race. They were very much gender with a flavor of something else. So it was, let's do something for women and then maybe for those gay people, or let's do something for women or those individuals with a disability. But very few organizations up until the last you know, four or five years, and even a few in the last two years, were looking at the full spectrum of diversity and saying, how can we make this work for everyone? Including
0: straight white men, by the way, right? So, and there is a place for that as well. I'm glad that you mentioned that, Susie, you know, particularly when it does come to gender equality. um, Of course, and rightly so, we do focus on women, but I think it's important to also, you know, remember that we can't forget about men and the role that men play and how to engage men in that agenda too. Um, You know, it's not just that we want women to win and men to lose, but rather, you know, just work together instead.
1: We tend to not see the interplay between the two. So to your point, we need to create a place where it's not when women win, men lose. Recognizing that when we change the world for women, it helps men. So when we root out some of this misogyny and sexism, I know lots of men who don't want to work in hyper-masculine environments, who don't enjoy the kind of banter or negativity that goes hand in hand with misogyny. Um, so, men win when we change the world for women. And similarly, when we change the world for men, we look at men's mental health, men's suicide, men's addiction rates, men's incarceration. There's a, we, I'm happy to talk about this all day long. And um, when we change that world, we change it for women too, because we open up a plethora of possibilities for young boys and men in terms of what success looks like, what happiness is, what a good life could be. We get more balanced friendships, partnerships, society. And a, I think a more joyful outcome. So I, w- I think it's really important that we not look. We not only look at how individual groups can be allies to each other, but how when we help each other, everybody wins.
0: Exactly, you're absolutely right, Susie. Um, and you know, another question, kind of following off from the previous one, is that you mentioned that one of the issues that leaders have when implementing diversity and inclusion is that their time scarce and. Of course, we know that, you know, this isn't something that can change overnight. It does require constant dedication and commitment. So, you know, time is a huge issue, but, you know, we also know about the number of benefits that diversity and inclusion can bring a company. And so, you know, besides the time issue, what else is it, do you think, that's holding back leaders in particular from, you know, implementing diversity and inclusion strategies and essentially moving from, you know, this intention to action?
1: Uh, That is a great question, and I would probably hone in on on two things. The first is how we tend to treat diversity and put it in a box of kind of well-meaning, sweet, but ineffective. Um, And what I mean by that is when you look at really well architected change programs and you ask someone, you know, what does a strategic change have? Going, you know, if you're setting up a strategic change program, what, what components would you expect? And it would be, you know, executive leadership, you know, clear strategy followed by a multi year plan with short, medium, and long term outcomes that are measured, supported by data. There would be learning programs and cultural programs, engagement, communications, a whole plethora of things that you would expect to see. And often I have this conversation with my clients. And then when it comes to your inclusion and diversity programs, what of those components do you have and individuals will go oh one or two of those things (laughs) so we tend to dabble at diversity so we'll do a really well-meaning event we'll put individuals who are super passionate in charge which is wonderful we we rely on a lot on passionate employees but we don't then think of inclusion and diversity as a skill set that we need. So the first part is we don't set it up for success with programs, like really good architecture, strategic change. Ask yourself, does my diversity program have this? And the answer is probably not. And if not, it really slows down those outcomes. And the second is the lack of skills in this space. So we we alluded to it earlier, but if inclusion is a doing word, you have to have the right skills to know what inclusive action to take. And there was no course at school on this stuff, no race 101. You know, no gender dynamics or gender norms, even understanding the right language, right? Do I say person of color and why is colored person a a word you can't say? And there's a whole series of things that people get hung up on and then they end up doing nothing. So in the absence of that skills, the capability and the confidence, they go, I'm just going to double down on my niceness because I don't have very much time. And that's going to hold me in good stead. And that's where we encounter problems, because actually that nice person probably doesn't want to engage in the conversation about racial equality because it's hugely uncomfortable and potentially puts them in what they see as a risky situation because they don't have the skills to really host the conversation or come to
0: the other side with the action that would be the appropriate one. You've put a great number of points up, Susie, and I think there is this tendency, particularly around the conversation of race, um, but the same can be said for other protected characteristics too. That you know it can be uncomfortable to talk about, but you're right. You know we do need to have these uncomfortable conversations to then be able to create that change. Um, and you mentioned that it's not something that we learn at school, and you are correct, Susie, it's not. But it's something that I do think about quite a lot. You know, I think that the UK schooling system, you know, the agenda does need a reform. So that, you know, children are educated on, you know, language and certain terminology. So, you know, if we start by educating younger children, then later on in life or future generations, you know, making this positive change is a lot easier. So, yeah, I do think that's really important. Um, and then my next question that kind of leads on from the previous one is then, what's your approach to kind of navigating diversity in the workplace, uh, Susie? So how do you go about influencing leaders or, you know, leadership teams to driving this cultural change? You know, something that you mentioned is that we have targets for other things, but then I'm sure you've come across the question of, you know, so how do we measure EDI strategies or how do we measure these EDI programs? Well, um, I think we're headed
1: towards the conversation of targets, but we can talk about broader measures in a moment. I mean. The reality is we, generally speaking, if you took the word diversity away and you started talking to a senior leader about really important, again, strategic change programs that they have at board level, if I walked into the board with a presentation on anything without a plan to have measurable outcomes, I would be walked right back out, right? We're going to sell more, okay? (laughs) Next quarter's sales results are going to be unmeasured, you know? You know, our customer satisfaction, we're going to take a guess at it and hope, run a few events, right? So this, this sort of idea of event-based hope, et cetera, will get us through is laughable. You're smiling. I can see that. Um, when it comes to diversity and measures, we worry immediately about reverse discrimination. So there's an immediate worry, and then people pull back and say, well, we're not going to have targets. And I think it's important to notice the difference between targets and quotas. So quotas are government-led targets that mean if you miss that, you are unable to do business. So if you do not meet the quota, you are not allowed to either pitch for the work or be in the stock exchange or, or whatever the particular thing. Right. Usually they're government level. Targets are your eye on the horizon and where you're headed, right? And it's just good business sense to put your eyes on the horizon and say what does inclusion look like what would good representation for us look like and to put some measures in place and so you would expect that in terms of what percentage of women what percentage of ethnic minorities you know or what percentage of lgbt who are open and you know gay within our organization for example but you also need to create measures that are about what it feels like so i often um suggest to my clients that we look at their employee engagement survey and on key questions we look at any major differential in how different diverse groups respond including white men right so if it's i feel like i can um my career aspirations can be achieved here or i feel like my voice is listened to or i feel a sense of belonging those sorts of questions we can still have qualitative data which is kind of a qual quant measure. It allows us to understand the sentiment and show any gap. And we should be rooting out those gaps, right? Everyone should feel a sense of their career being achieved, you know, achievable in an organization. And if you have a 10, 15, or even sometimes like 20 point gap difference between how minority groups answer certain questions, then you know you have some cultural work to do.
0: Exactly. And that links perfectly onto what I actually wanted to discuss next with you, Susie, so, you know, we've spoken about what leaders can do and leadership teams, but what about the employees and, you know, the staff, our organizations? Um, you know, for example, let's focus on ethnic minorities in the workplace. What do you think are the main challenges that they face when it comes to, you know, trying to get into these leadership roles? Um, and, you know, i will focused on race here, but I guess, you know, there will be similar issues when it comes to gender, sexuality, disability, et cetera.
1: Well, I think in any leadership role, there's usually a dominant culture, right? So really high performing organizations will have a clear DNA, a, a modus operandi, a way of working, whatever term you wanna use. And that DNA is the thing that usually made the organization successful, but often you can get too much of a good thing. So you get that really tight DNA suite sequence means anyone who behaves differently gets tissue rejected out of those upper echelons. And I think that applies to all diverse groups, right? So um, if it happens to be that it is white men who predominantly are in those roles or white Western men, right? And and in fact, I see more often than not, it's white Western men who are divorced, who live in the city three days a week and have their family at a home somewhere else, right? You you start to get to these really even small models of what it takes to be successful in the organization. if you want to create space for individuals of difference, and even that's straight white men who think differently, by the way, because you can be an individual of difference and not necessarily be in one of the protected characteristics, you have to create and counter that tissue rejection. So you have to purposely say, we're going to welcome that difference in thinking. We're going to seek it out and create um, our own counterbalance to how we might iron out difference. And I think recognizing that when you are in the minority group, so ethnic minorities, women in particular, we're all editing, right? So we're all trying to align our behavior to the norm in order to get on because we can see what it takes to rise to the top, right? And we, we know this in any society in the world, people will adapt in a chameleon sort of way and sort of shrink themselves into what they think the organization wants to see but the problem with that when you're a person of difference is that you lose some of what makes you who you are you lose the great difference right if we're all adapting to be part of that sort of normed group in order to get on and rise through the organization the organization is losing out on diverse points of view but authenticity is also going down so the one of the things that we know is the way you Rise to the top in an organization is not only to be a smart cookie and do a good job, that's a given. You've got to have strong relationships. So there's smart cookies everywhere, right? You've got to be that good to be at that, that part of the organization. But the difference usually is how strong your relationships are. And when you have individuals who are gay, lesbian, bisexual, or women, or Black, Asian, etc., who are morphing to fit into your majority culture they will be minimizing bits of themselves to such an extent that it affects the authenticity of their relationship. But it goes two ways. You need others to dive into that authenticity. So uh, I think your question was, how can we create a space where more individuals can rise to the top? I think there's a whole series of things we can do, but recognizing the role that authentic relationships and being able to be yourself and rise to the top, and that's a cultural adaptation for the organization are really key.
0: Exactly. And I think that not only plays a role in attracting this kind of talent, but, you know, retaining it too. Um, And our conversation today has really focused on this movement from passive intention to, you know, active action. And that's exactly what your new book, Mind the Inclusion Gap, focuses on. So uh, it would be great just before we come to an end of this podcast, if you would tell us a bit more about your book and, what inspired you, and what this journey has been like
1: for you. Super, thanks. Um, well, what inspired me to write it? A couple of people said you should write a book. <laughs> that was the starting point. you got to write a book. There's so much in your head. Um, I'll be honest, writing the book has taken me more than three years. Uh, I've torn up more than two manuscripts. Um, it's been a huge learning process for me. But my, my intention in writing it is... To help people move away from relying on that niceness. I had probably a couple of dozen clients over the last seven or eight years since I started running Red Plate that um, who would say to me, "What we're really nice. You know, I know we're homogenous. I know we're not very diverse, but we're really nice people. And one client in particular who sits in the creative industry, I remember going away from a meeting with the CEO who kept going on about how nice and contemplating over dinner and over the next few days is nice enough, right? And we talked about this earlier. And for this particular client, I built a spectrum. And I built a spectrum from the racist, homophobic, sexist, you name it, the ist, to the activist, And all the roles in between, from being anti to the agenda or negative to diversity or negative to that group, to tolerant, to neutral, to curious, to positive, to allyship. And the next time I met with the CEO, I asked him to plot where he thought nice sat on my spectrum. We had a really good conversation. And after a few moments of hesitation, he said, nowhere. And I was like, you're right. Nice is actually irrelevant. You can be a nice person and be a racist. You're not being nice person you're being racist to, right? You can be nice and be an activist. And so we use this irrelevant role to say, I, this is where I am at with inclusion and diversity. Um, And it is irrelevant, right? So the reason I wrote the book was to help people understand the role they could take. And then for those individuals I meet who want to be an ally, who claim to be an ally or aspire to be an ally helping them build skills and confidence in this space so the book goes into fear of reverse discrimination fear of a cancel culture you know you know I, do i have to sit in the inequality chair now is it my turn to be held back and all of those sort of negative aspects to the agenda it also tries to help individuals go on a journey on you know what does sexual orientation have to do outside of the bedroom? Why are we talking about who you love in the workplace? And I get that question a lot when I'm running workshops. And it's a great question that we don't spend enough time on. You have to read the book to know the answer, by the way. No. <laughs> and, and, and as well, I wanted the book to uh, really unpick what we need for men, for women, and for trans individuals, because I find there is so much aggression and drama and fighting between the two ends of the spectrum, especially when it comes to transgender community, um, we need more people in the middle who are currently taking a very passive role to decide to engage. And if those of us in the middle were to engage, we could create calm and considered conversations and figure out a pretty good path forward, I think. So. The book is aimed at helping people who consider themselves a nice person decide to take a really conscious choice in a role that they want to play. And if that role is being an ally, to really get skilled up and understand the really important things they need to know in order to take the right kind of action to create a society they want to be a part of.
0: Well, perfect summary you've given of your book, you know, this very short amount of time. Um, and I think personally, you know, what makes your book so intriguing is that it does address the conversations that people fear to have in the workplace, uh, like you said, about, you know, trans inclusion, race, et cetera. Um, you know, right now, in this moment, if there's one thing, one purposeful action that you could share with myself and those who are listening, um, you know, that we can do to help close this inequality gap, what would that be? Well, I think
1: if you're one of the people who is curious and wants to be an ally but doesn't know what to do, you know, don't wait for my book. <laughs> I mean, it's coming. <laughs> I'd love <laughs> you to, buy. but I I meet a lot of people who are really well intentioned but very lazy. So I would say, take take the, even take five minutes to Google. So if we take the example of the word colored, in a room of a hundred people, if I ask a hundred individuals, um is the word colored okay to use? 99 will know it's not. But then if I say, who can give me an explanation as to why not? 98 won't be able to answer that question. And then if I challenge the room and say, if you knew it was wrong, why didn't you look it up? What are you waiting for, right? So we, we can be really fearful of racial equality in these conversations, the fear of being canceled or things like that. But very few of us take the time to educate ourselves. And in this particular instance, a quick Google goes a really long way, right? I don't recommend Google for everything. (laughs) But in this instance, did you Google it, right? No, just silence. So I think if I were to give one bit is don't wait and don't be lazy. And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's too easy to sit back and go, that's divisive or that's a challenging agenda. I'm just going to go get a cup of tea and go do something else. Take five minutes, ten minutes, twenty minutes, thirty minutes, whenever you can, to educate yourself. There are so many opportunities, whether they're blogs, books, events, or human beings, human libraries that you can you can check out and discuss and talk to other human beings about what it's like to be them. Um, so I would say get started. Don't wait.
0: That's wonderful advice, and thank you so much for sharing that, Susie. And it is very true. You know, I do the same thing myself. Um, you know, there's this idea of what is considered good and bad socially, but you're right, a quick Google search or just a conversation with someone else can quickly resolve that.
1: I was going to say, especially when you talk to another human being, I I would also encourage you to not take what they say and and make it feel harmful. And what what I mean by that is I might talk to three people and say, what do you think about the word colored? And they might all give me a slightly different answer. Or one person might say, why are you asking me? Go look it up yourself. And so I think, in addition to engaging, we got to have a little bit of thicker skin. Um, Nobody is damning you and saying you're a bad person, but some people may say, I think you could have done some of this on your own. And and I know that does make it even more fearful. So I would say create a a really good balance between reading, talking, listening, asking questions. And if somebody does give you a course correction, because I've been course corrected, dozens and dozens of times you can't work in the space and not be nudged by someone going "Mm, you could have done that better just lean into that course correction right have a growth mindset we're all learning as we go and dust yourself off and go again
0: it's true you know it's not a failure I believe you know it's more of a learning process Um, and you know that saying is very true that you have to get it wrong before you get it right But, you know, before we come to an end, Susie, I do have one final question for you today. Um, It's not a serious one, but I think it's one that I guess find most difficult uh, to answer. And that is, if there's one thing that you could be remembered for, what would that be? Goodness. (sighs) Great
1: cooking. Uh, I, I would love to be remembered that whenever I was at her dinner table... It was a fantastic meal. So uh, I I love food. I've been exploring food my whole life, different cuisines. Right now, my favorite chef is an Iranian chef. Brilliant. Sabrina Ghaior, if you've never heard of her, Feasts, um, her first cookbook. It's phenomenal. Uh, But I would love that people thought of, remembered
0: by my good food and great conversation. As a fellow foodie, I love that answer. Um, But, you know, thank you so much for today, Susie. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And, you know, I really do appreciate you sharing all your knowledge and experiences with us all. Um, And I'm pretty sure listeners will have a lot to take away and, you know, a lot that they'll want to go and research themselves. So I do appreciate everything that you've uh, shared with us. And on a final note, where can listeners find you or, you know, reach out to you or even simply, you know, where can they go to learn more about this topic?
1: Oh, wonderful. Uh, Well, you can find me on LinkedIn, Susie Levy. Um, you can also find me on my company website, where um, redplate.co.uk. And if you're interested in the book, um, unbound.com, books slash inclusion, um, you can find my book there and pre-purchase a copy and support the book on its journey to being printed.
0: Wonderful. You know, once again, Susie, thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. And I do wish you all the best for the future. Thanks. Have a great day. Thanks so much for listening today. Wherever you're tuning in from, we'd love to hear from you. What were your learnings from today's conversation? Is there anything you'd like to add? Let us know using the hashtag TEG podcast on Twitter, or you can reach out to us anytime via contact at theequalgroup.com. And in the meantime, head on over to our website, theequalgroup.com, for more insights and articles around equality, diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Why not join our mailing list to be the first to get updates on all the latest EDI news as well as our free monthly EDI training webinars. And finally, to stay tuned for more podcast interviews coming up soon, make sure you're following us at The Equal Group on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. That's it for today's episode. Until next time, everyone.